This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. As many listeners know, I like to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening in diaspora Jewish communities, and uh, I really am an educator primarily. I think I see myself as an educator more than anything else, and I like to check in with other educators, especially Jewish leaders in the diaspora who are kind of looking from the outside in at social and political developments in Israeli society. And because sometimes by engaging with those who are looking at what's happening here from the outside, um, you know, they have a radically different vantage point and can A, help us understand some of the things taking place here on the ground that we're just way too close to, to really understand. And simultaneously, we can help them understand things that they might just be too far away to properly understand. So I asked Rabbi Ben Greenfield uh, from the Greenpoint Shul in Brooklyn, New York, uh, who's also an educator of Gemara, teacher of Gemara, teacher of Talmud at uh, the Ramaz High School in Manhattan. Uh, I asked Rav Ben to join me on the show to share his perspective and maybe to hear mine on uh, on some things that have disturbed him this past Yom Yerushalayim here in Jerusalem. Rav Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, so glad to be here. Before we jump in, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, the work that you do, uh, just so everyone can get a sense of who you are, who they're listening to. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, very much in like the modern Orthodox world and then the American religious Zionist world. Very involved in, in B'nai Kiva growing up. I went to B'nai Kiva summer camp uh, for five years. I was a counselor there for uh, for two years. Um, and uh, always sort of in my youth identified very much as, as religious Zionist. And uh, I was very honored to be part of uh, institutions after high school that I think are part of that world as well. I learned in Yeshiva Hotel in the Old City. Uh, I, le- I learned at uh, Haratzion, uh, Gush uh, as well. Uh, and still very much identify as a religious Zionist, uh, proudly so. And, and feel we're living at a really um, incredible time in Jewish history um, where, uh, thank God, we were able to create a state of Israel. And I think it, it's a real shift, a real uh, uh, e- epochal shift uh, from, our, from our previous period of Jewish history before the state. Um, currently, um, so I'm a rabbi. Um, I've been a synagogue rabbi, public rabbi for five years now. Uh, I'm in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, at the Greenpoint Show. Uh, very cool neighborhood, very eclectic, interesting congregation. Um, what was I going to say? You know, I mentioned, you know, I, I identify as religious Zionist. Um, plenty of diversity within my community. A real interesting range of American and also Israeli, uh, Israeli people are in the show. Real range on Hashkafa, real range on politics. Uh, so I want to make sure I'm not a... Not say I'm not speaking on behalf of my congregation as a whole. And one of the beauties of my congregation is that diversity and how we sort of keep it all together as a Jewish community across different hashkafa, uh, different ideologies. Uh, but I am definitely uh, speaking for myself in this regard. Um, right. Fantastic. Yeah. Can I ask? I think you've uh, you've used a term a few times now. You mentioned religious Zionism a few times. Yeah. Uh, it might be helpful to to find that. Like when you say religious Zionism, what does that mean to you? Sure. Um, well, I guess it kind of goes both ways. The religious defines Zionism, the Zionism defines the religious piece. Um, so, um, yeah, okay. So, um, you know, a, a rough, rough definition of Zionism is something like uh, the belief that the Jewish people will be better, will be better off uh, creating a political state for themselves, ideally in the land of Israel, and that that is something that Jews should organize around both, uh, and that practically it would be good for us, and that morally, at least if done correctly, it is the right thing and and uh, something that we should do. Um, I think the religious piece um, modifies the Zionism, and the Zionism a little bit modifies the religion. So um, the Zionism modifying the religion is in the sense of um, not only is that project something that maybe for secular reasons you can arrive at, but my religious Jewish tradition makes me arrive at Zionism as well. I think that Jewish sources, Jewish texts, the, 
the the broad vision of the religious Jewish story points to a place where Jews are in political possession um, of a political possession and rooted in the land of Israel. Um, and it and I think the uh, the religion the religious should should modify the Zionism as well um, to not see Zionism solely as a secular project to not see Zionism solely as a material project, but to see it as part of the ongoing spiritual flourishing of the Jewish people, that in some way our moral project, our spiritual project is served uh, and elevated by having uh, a political state in the land of Israel. Uh, and if anything, maybe that the religious piece is meant to not just elevate Zionism, but also to check it, to make sure that what is a what could be a solely uh, secular political project doesn't go the way of other secular political projects and use its uh, use its political power for the sake of um, frankly like immoral and unethical behavior. Mm-hmm. So uh, so the religious piece modifies the Zionism both in the sense of asking it to have higher aspirations and seeing it as part of the overall spiritual path of Jewish people, but also ideally serving as a check and of saying, wait, we're a, we're first and foremost a moral people. And we've got to make sure that our Zionism is in alignment with that as well. That sounded like a very well thought out definition. <laughs> uh, I wish I had more time to think it out. But yeah, that's what comes to my mind when you ask me in this context. Yes. So for me, you know, and again, a lot of this is semantic. You know, when I think about the word Zionism these days, I, I haven't always felt this way. But when I think about the word Zionism, I, for the most part, think of it as a 19th, 20th century Jewish national movement, not as a synonym for Jewish liberation, meaning I think there've been many Jewish liberation movements throughout time. I think there are a lot of Jews or self-defined Zionists who would use the word Zionism as like a synonym for Jewish liberation. And they would anachronistically apply it to movements and individuals who predate the term, like saying Rabbi Akiva was a Zionist or Yudah Maccabee was a Zionist or Bar Kochba was a Zionist. Uh, I try not to do that uh, nowadays. I I used to be more guilty of that. Uh, I try to isolate Zionism as a very specific movement that uh, existed as a link in a much larger chain, but that was much more successful than almost all of the Jewish liberation movements that came before it. Uh, And harshly, for a number of reasons, I think one of the reasons I would say it might've been more successful is um, the situation of the Jewish people at the time, uh, also, borrowing, I think that uh, one of the things that made Zionism unique is that it really borrowed a lot of ideas from European nationalism and also borrowed a lot of methodology and practices from colonial projects that existed at the time. And uh, so I, I kind of see Zionism as the movement that successfully brought us home meaning you know it's hard to overstate the magnitude of a movement that successfully brings us back to our land after almost 2000 years of exile revives our ancient language uh creates the infrastructure for a state um i think there might be a larger discussion to be had over whether or not it was zionism that liberated our land from the british or if it was something that was actually zionist adjacent but not quite zionist Um, But then I think once we came back to Jerusalem, we came back to Zion in the Six-Day War, I see Zionism as ending, as having had completed its role in history and leaving the Jewish people needing, whether we know it or not, something new, something that comes after Zionism, uh, something that will uh, use the conditions created by Zionism's success to identify and achieve the next goals of Jewish liberation. And I think we haven't done that. I think that's, you know, part of my um, part of my frustration is that, you know, we're now over five decades since the Six Day War, since the unification of Jerusalem, and we still haven't really figured out what we want to do with all this, what we came back to life to be. And, and I guess when I think of religious Zionism, I, and I know a lot of people use this term differently, I actually don't think of Rav Kook. Like, I, I consider myself to be a student of Rav Kook, and I have learned and I teach in Rav Kook-oriented institutions, but I would not identify Rav Kook as a Zionist or a religious Zionist. I would identify Rav Kook as somebody who is looking at Zionism from the outside, saw 
both its positive and negative features and ultimately decided that we should support this and work with this, cooperate with this, but also recognize that this is limited and will eventually need to, to provide something that it will not be able to create itself. So first, I'm, I'm curious, you know, uh, you spoke about the importance of, uh, I think, de-linking the term Zionism from um, earlier figures. Don't call Rabbi Akiva Zionist, uh, whatever it might be. Don't call uh, Rabbi Yehuda Levi a Zionist. Why do you think that's so important? Meaning, yes, if you define Zionism as, you know, a 19th, a 19th century, 20th century political movement, then obviously people who predate that movement aren't part of it. But, um, you know, uh, I don't think the Judaism or the halachic Judaism that I practice is exactly the same as that which Rava or Abai practiced in, in Bavel. So it's similar, it's not exactly the same, but I'm happy to say, you know, I'm a, I practice the same Judaism, basically the same Judaism they did. Uh, I'm happy to say I'm part of the rabbinic tradition in the capital R sense, in the sense of Chazal, in the sense of the Talmud. Like uh, part of connecting yourself to an ideological tradition, or not, a part of connecting yourself to a tradition at all, is recognizing, you know, threads of continuity, even if the context and the expression isn't the exact same. So I'm curious, yeah, what what do you see as important? Uh, why, why is it important or helpful to not use those kind of statements? Rabbi Akiva was a Zionist, um, Moshe Rabbeinu was a Zionist, etc. Well, first of all, for the, for the sake of accuracy, meaning when the world speaks about Zionism, they're talking about a specific movement that came into being in the 1890s and not necessarily, you know, every Jewish figure throughout history who wanted to liberate our land or wanted political possession over the land. Uh, and I think there's there have been so many, I, th I think we lose sight of the fact there have been so many Jewish liberation movements, even between Bar Kokhba and Herzl. Uh, that we never really speak about or teach about because they failed. But I think each one of these links was important and to, I guess, paint them all with the Zionist brush kind of minimizes their importance. It prevents us from like really, it just looks like one long Zionist struggle that eventually succeeded in 1948 mm -hmm. uh, or 1967 uh, rather than you know, these independent links that are, of course, interconnected and, of course, inspired those that came after each one. You know, one inspires the next, etc. Uh, but I think, you know, Zionism also has a specific ideology or set of ideologies, meaning Zionism uh, was driven by certain ideas and aspired towards certain goals and had certain accomplishments uh, that might be radically different from what uh, Rabbi Yudha Levi uh, or the Ramban or the Gonovilna uh, we're looking to achieve. Right. Okay. So maybe one more sort of pushback in the way you were describing uh, Zionism. Um, so I think you used, said some the sentence basically as follows, you know, Zionism was the movement that successfully brought us home, which I believe was contrasting to maybe previous what you'd call liberation movements, but Zionism is one that successfully brought us home. Yeah. So, you know, part of me almost wants to define Zionism as the sense that the land of Israel is home. Mm -hmm. One modification: the sense that land, the sense, the Jewish sense that the land of Israel is home, in, in in something beyond just an abstraction. And like I think, you know, when we talk, when someone talks about that place is my home, mm -hmm. they could mean it as as a place where I'm. Um, I associate memories, dear memories, maybe even not dear memories, but you know, part of my life is there. They can mean it as um, like a symbolic kind of hope, like one day we will return home, and it, it serves as a, a unifying. It serves as a unifying symbol, but solely as a symbol, as an abstraction of a future time disconnected from any practical aspirations today. But another way a person, another thing a person might mean when they say that place is home, is they might mean something like it is something is off when I'm not there. I'm I'm not I'm not where I should be. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm away from my natural environment. They might mean something like uh, that place is home. I.e., I should be there. We would be better off if we were there. They may even mean it as the people who are currently there. And I'm not ascribing to this uh, in contemporary reality. The people who are currently there shouldn't be there because that's my home. So all of those that the, the latter kind of three examples I gave are much less as an abstraction and much more as like, they have a practical point. The last one to me maybe goes too far on that practical point. They have a practical point, which is geared toward, therefore I should be there. 
I would be better off if I'm there. Um, home comes with family. I have a family and be better for the entire family to be there. And once we're there, we shouldn't be there as guests. Like we should be there as the people who run the home. Um, we have to maybe figure out, wait, maybe this building can have two apartments, you know, <laughs> that, that, uh, yeah, leaving that aside. But I think uh, I would almost define Zionism as, you know, the sense or the belief that Jews have a home, that that home is in the land of Israel, and that that home is something practical and not just an abstraction. Mm-hmm. And I do think Rabbi Akiva felt that. Um, yeah. I'm not expert in Ramban. I know the Ramban, the Ramban felt that it was a mitzvah to, to live in, in the land of Israel. I don't know the practical ways that he wanted that of himself trying to live in the land of Israel. But I think if someone has a practical goal that we should, I should be, we should be back in the land of Israel, and we should do that as people who are there as our home, not as guests, but this is our home, then yeah, I would call that Zionism. And if it's coming from a religious place and fairly coming from a religious place, I would call that religious Zionism. Um, and if it comes from a sense of that is part of God's project for the Jewish people and God's project for repairing the world, I would say that's religious Zionism. And um, if it's checked, if it's checked by being rooted in a strong sense of Jewish ethics and also in halakha, then I'd also say that's religious Zionism, making sure that that project isn't performed in a way where we just become worse than our own enemies. I would also like to say that that's part of religious Zionism. Okay, my, my rant's over. Um, there's a lot to respond to there. So I think for me, look, uh, I don't know how much you know about the work that we do at the Vision Movement, but a lot of what we do is trying to apply post-colonial tools to Jewish identity and Jewish history. Mm-hmm. I'm of the opinion that every people who achieves material liberation would be well advised to then go enter into a post-colonial conversation, uh, which we never did. The, the truth is the Jewish people have not yet done. Uh, instead, we kind of, you know, we made the British leave, the Zionists, then took power, took down the Union Jack and put up an Israeli flag on a British colonial system and called it a Jewish state. And there's been no like Israeli national leader who's really wanted to take it upon him or herself to say like, let's have this conversation, let's really talk about, first of all, you know, the post-colonial conversation is helpful in just dealing with our own trauma and understanding what happened to us over the last 19 centuries. Uh, and in what ways was our identity affected? In what ways do we need to heal? Uh, and that, of course, also impacts our relationship with the Palestinians, because I, I would argue that uh, Palestinians are very much victims of a Jewish identity crisis and also Jewish trauma. Now, in addition to just figuring out how to heal ourselves you know, from what happened to us, I would argue that a post-colonial conversation can also help a liberated people to really define what kind of society they're trying to create, meaning uh, what values, what identity should be expressed through the uh, policies and institutions of the state. You know, how what, what does it mean to have a Jewish state? Is it just a European-style nation-state with a Jewish demographic majority and some Jewish decorations, like national symbols? Or is it a state that really expresses our identity and values in its policies and institutions, in its behavior. Uh, and I think that's something we haven't really tackled yet. It, it's a conversation the Jewish people as a collective, both here in the land of Israel and in the diaspora, we, we haven't had that conversation yet, really, not in a, a real way. So I think that's important. And in, in the interest of really untangling the mess that is the Jewish situation, um, I think we need to define terms like clearly and neatly and separate things and kind of make Zionism its own category. And you have also the attempts to liberate our land from like uh, Shlomo Malcho and David Ruveni and David Alroy and El Dadadani and Benjaminish Tiveria, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of those are kind of like independent Jewish liberation movements that try to do great things. Uh, if we were to go back in time and ask Rabbi Akiva, are you a Zionist? He probably wouldn't know what we're talking about. Just like if we were to go back in time and ask uh, Jesus if he was a Palestinian, he wouldn't know what we're talking about. Like in both cases, people are anachronistically applying modern terms to 
people who predate those terms. And I think that sometimes trips us up, especially when we're having deep political conversations. I think it's great to keep things in categories like neatly defined, because uh, that can help us. Because sometimes uh, the solutions, in my experience, sometimes the solutions to political and social challenges lie in really kind of filtering and like really untangling things that have been so tangled up together uh, in recent history that the people assume they can't have that thing they really want because uh, their neighbor won't let them have this other thing that's been compounded with it, but it's not really um, a core aspiration per se. Yeah, um, well, that makes sense to me. I guess uh, there was one small point that I want to highlight that I agreed with from a little while back, which is I thought it was interesting to hear you say you see Zionism as ending uh, or having ended essentially uh, in 67. Um, not a way I've thought about it, but um, I, I, I almost, it's making me think, you know, you said if Zionism is the movement that successfully brought us home, yes, in 48 and around 67, okay, now we're home. So then what's the project? Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we know it, it's something we know what the remaining project is. The project is that that home is not fully secured. So that project is, okay, now I'm in the home, but like, I've got to be putting up all this, I hate to use that terminology, fencing, um, but I, I need to be on guard because I'm worried that the home is, uh, is, it needs to be defended. That's a lot of the work. Um, I think in America, that work also continues, obviously not on the ground in a military sense or a security sense, but a lot of Zionists in America, religious or not, feel like our job is to be part of the defense of this home that is not fully secured. Um, and the other piece also, and I'm not actively engaged in this, is okay, uh, the movement successfully brought us home, but not everyone's home yet. So that's not, you know, where I devote my resources in, uh, into encouraging people to uh, make Aliyah, or even less than that, just encouraging people to be in Israel, connect to Israel, etc. Uh, but I think those are the kind of two remaining pieces. We're home, but the home isn't secure, and we're home, and not all of us are here yet. But what I really appreciate in your words is, um, yeah, the, the, the sense of a loss of mission. Like, yes, Zionism successfully brought most of us home and that home is pretty stable, not perfectly stable. So what now? Uh, and I uh, certainly see the like flailing a little bit of what's the next step beyond, hey, we have political power, isn't that nice? Uh, and, you know, I guess this connects a little bit to what to the Yom Yerushalayim conversation. My kind of fear that having power, expressing power, the gleeful expression of power uh, becomes its own kind of, its own kind of ends. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that's, that's like the worst thing to see. That, that, I, that would be the, the corruption of the Jewish people, I worry. So before we, before we jump into that, I, I do want to touch on this idea of power. I, I think first of all, well, before I even get to that, I'd like to maybe strengthen your point uh, about Zionism kind of ending or not knowing what the project is today. Uh, I think that we, we have to appreciate that a hundred years ago, Zionism was a political movement that aspired to real social and political change. And therefore, it was able to inspire like masses of young Jews all over the world. Uh, Today, it doesn't seem to have that power. Uh, even if you go to a university campus, you know, you'll notice that almost every political group on campus is fighting for some kind of change. Uh, whereas the pro-Israel community is often not fighting for any change, but merely trying to like defend the reputation of a specific nation state, which actually makes these groups look less like activists and more like agents of the Israeli state. And I think that a lot of young Jews with tremendous revolutionary potential who really do want to make the world a better place for all peoples uh, don't see any relevancy in Zionism or Israel, if anything, the opposite. If anything, they see uh, that as part of the problem. Uh, and I think part of that is because we've um, we achieved, and th these aren't small achievements. I think Zionism in its time set out to achieve revolutionary goals that no other nation has succeeded at achieving, meaning we're the only people I could think of that was essentially destroyed thousands of years ago, maintained its national identity, at least in portable form, uh, for centuries, and then ultimately returned almost 2,000 years later to the land it had been displaced from 
and began this project of taking possession of its land and rebuilding its ancient civilization in the modern age. And, and that makes us very unique in history. That, that's one of the reasons I think it's so hard to, you know, is Zionism an indigenous people's liberation movement or is Zionism a colonial project from Europe? I think the truth transcends those two ostensibly opposite understandings of Zionism because we are unique in history. There's no other people that really fit into the box or we don't fit into the box that most people are used to thinking of, you know, these different movements and, and conflicts around the world, etc. We just don't neatly fit into the roles that people are used to thinking about when, uh, when looking at similar issues around the world. Uh, and so, anyway, I think that's a really interesting distinction about the, uh, the different the campus activism piece that you write today. Pro-Israel advocacy, I think it's a very interesting point, is, you know, essentially conservative, and I don't mean, I don't mean in American political terms, but conservative trying to conserve something. Mm -hmm. Like, we've got this state, it's really good, right? We're not, it's not revolutionary. It's not trying to create a bigger revolution. Pro-Israel activism today is conservative in that sense. Totally, uh, I find that very compelling. And I think you had a, a small piece before that that I think is incorrect, which is, and that that's, um, heart that's not inspiring to young people or harder to inspire young people towards something that's static like that i don't think that's true i think that there's i get to see i get to see a lot of passion in what i guess i'm going to call now like the end projects of zionism not as in to end zionism but you know the final chapters so the end projects are you know strengthening the state and def defending that home that's under attack and bringing more people into that home and uh, I get to see in high school students, tremendous passion, tremendous passion for defending that home. Even though we are successfully brought there, I get to see tremendous passion uh, for bringing people back and honoring people who are making Aliyah, honoring people who are trying out Aliyah, honoring people who are going to Israel for the year. And uh, I experienced that as well in college scene. Um, and I, I think it's an interesting point, right? Where would, where would that further go if it was able to be channeled towards something that was revolutionary instead of uh conservative but i do think there's a lot of conservative fervor out there and i'm glad that there is so i'll share a couple examples that you know i think i've discovered or in the course of my work you know at, at the vision movement we really run a lot of educational programs to empower young jews to be thought leaders of the next jewish liberation project like what are the goals of jewish liberation after zionism success and we create a lot of space for them to be thought leaders um, of their own, like, like to really create their own post-Zionist Jewish liberation tendency. And uh, those tendencies can be radically different from one another, just as Zionism had tendencies that were radically different from one another, right? You had cultural Zionism and revisionist Zionism and religious Zionism and uh, labor Zionism, right? And these were all kind of in conflict with each other and friction with each other, but that friction really propelled our people forward and led to uh, tremendous achievements. And I think that if we were to uh, educate our next generation today, not to be Zionists, not to be students of Herzl or Achad Am or Jabotinsky, but to be the next Herzl, you know, in a new Jewish liberation project, uh, I think that we would find a lot of different tendencies emerging that would be in competition with each other. And that competition would again, uh, propel us forward in terms of practical goals that I think we can put our um, put our energies towards. Like, I definitely would say that decolonizing Jewish identity is a an objective of Jewish liberation. Now, I would say reconciliation with the Palestinians is an objective of Jewish liberation. Now, I'd argue that independence from the United States no longer being uh, dependent on American money or weapons should be an objective of Jewish liberation. Uh, and I'd also say that transforming Israel into a revolutionary state that sides with the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors would be a revolutionary goal of Jewish liberation today. Yeah. Uh, not sure if I agree with all those goals, but yes, I agree those are all essential in that step. You're right, not being oppressors, uh, for sure. <laughs> uh, but, but in terms of power, I think you, you touched on something very interesting because Power is new for us. We have not had power in thousands of years. And we've had a lot of very um, painful experiences as a result of not having power. Uh, that's an understatement, obviously. And uh, now that we have power again for the first time in 2000 years, um, it's hard to know what to do with it. It's hard to get comfortable with that. I sense a little bit of discomfort with Jewish power, just in some of the things that you said. Uh, 
Also, I think that there is like, you know, the other end of the spectrum. You have people who are, like you said, gleeful expressions of power or, or trying to overuse power. I think that exists too within our people. But, but I think that part of it is like a discomfort with power. Like it's like trying on a, a shirt you haven't worn in a long time that doesn't really fit so well anymore. And you got to figure out a way to make it fit. Um, we got to get comfortable with power. Uh, because uh, yeah. we have it more than we know. That's also an important piece that most Israelis don't understand how powerful we are. I think that there really is a feeling in Israeli society and, and probably in diaspora communities as well, that we are still incredibly vulnerable. And we're not as vulnerable. I mean, if you look at Parshat Shlach you know, there's a statement that the spies make when they come back. They, they talk about how big the inhabitants of the land are. And we're like grasshoppers in our own eyes and must also be grasshoppers in their eyes. Meaning they didn't ask them. They just assumed we're grasshoppers in our own eyes and must therefore be grasshoppers in their eyes too. Like we're small. We see ourselves as small. So therefore, therefore the spies were actually telling the truth. We cannot conquer the land. Uh, it's interesting because 39 years later, there, there are two other spies who Yoshua sends into the land and they actually speak to inhabitants. They speak to Rahav in Yericho, in Jericho, and she says to them, no, the people here are really scared of you. People here know what happened at the uh, Yam Suf. People here know what happened at the Seirites. People here know what happened in Egypt. People here are terrified of you. Uh, so sometimes I think that our ability to get comfortable with our own power um, requires us to sometimes look at ourselves through the eyes of the other. So I, uh, I'm not sure we should get more comfortable with our power. I agree that uh, there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance and uh, there's definitely a, a Jewish desire in Israel and abroad, both about Israel and about Jew, Jews in America, I'd say. There's a, a desire to see ourselves as weak, a desire to see ourselves as oppressed. Um, I th think it fits into our own narratives about who we are. I think it's also convenient. If we're victims, then uh, we can't be blamed as being oppressors. That's that's a good problem, that we don't recognize just how much power we have. But I, I don't want us to become more comfortable with the power we have. First, I want Jews to have power. It's great. I want American Jews to have power. I want the state of Israel to have power. Power is great. But uh, I think it's actually one of the beauties of, I almost want to call it the diaspora tradition, but you know, I can't point you to specific texts right now. Most of the diaspora zeitgeist. Uh, I'm happy that we're uncomfortable with power. Uh, power corrupts. When, when you say power corrupts, I'm, I'm wondering if you're you're hearing what I'm saying the way I'm intending it. Like for example, when I started going to meetings with Palestinians, right? And and some of these guys are serious guys. Some of these people have sat in prison for political violence. You know, I'm, I'm meeting with people who I deem you know worth meeting with. People who are important in their circles, on their side, etc. Um, I I know a lot of other Jews. Uh, especially other Jews who live in the West Bank, who would have gone into those meetings trying to project power, trying to project some kind of dominance, maybe because of their own insecurities or their own need to like show like, we're tough here, don't mess with me, whatever. Um, and what I kind of did, I remember, and this is, I guess, something I learned growing up in New York, I would go into these interactions you know, I was being extremely open and uh, and nice and, and really like trying to learn and, and hear them and, and empathize. And, and I want them to hear me as well. I also have a story to tell. Uh, and I think they need to understand us just like we need to understand them. But there was like a, a soft power too, meaning like, you know, because maybe I feel comfortable with power, I don't feel I need to brandish it. I don't need to wear a gun on my hip. I don't need, to, you know what I mean? Like, like I feel like I'm a, I could be a powerful enough person without a gun. I feel like I can be a powerful enough person without trying to like show anybody how tough I am. And I think that that's something people like sense intuitively and respect, maybe more so in the circles I travel in than in the circles you travel in. But being a nation again, um, especially a nation that aspires to tikkun olam, like fixing the world, making the world a better place, uh, there are going to be opposition forces. If you try to make the, the world better, there are people who benefit from the world the way it is and they'll try to stop you. You need power for that. You need to be able to deal with the difficulties of the world. And uh, that's something that is, um, I think, extremely difficult to wrap one's head around if they're not comfortable with power. Like using it justly, I think that, that's how I would say it. Israel has a lot of power. We use our power today, I think on the state level, to really control Palestinians. 
um, and I would say oppressively control Palestinians because Israelis really believed, really believe that if we were to release control, if we were to to lift our thumbs off of them, uh, they would just try to kill as many Jews as they could. I think that's a belief that that the vast majority of Israelis hold. Um, but but I think that we can be powerful in a way that's in pursuit of justice, that even Palestinians experience us as wielding power justly and not inappropriately. Yeah, uh, to that last point of, you know, we justify, by we I mean Israelis, but I also mean myself as an American Jew who supports the state of Israel writ large, even if not every single policy. We, We justify oppression of Palestinians from this sense of if we didn't do we didn't establish X policy, F, F, Y security policy, et cetera. You know, they would, Palestinians writ large, not every single person individually, obviously, you know, would do terrible things to us. So what troubles me so deeply and why I posted what I posted about uh, Young Yerushalayim, troubles me so deeply is when you find instances of Jewish celebration of power and Jewish, um, I don't know, I don't know what to say, just uh, <laughs> harm to Palestinians or to Arabs, that is completely disconnected from that justification, completely disconnected from the justification of here's what we have to do. We're in a terrible situation, but like, unfortunately, you know, like Bidi Evet, because we have to, I have to build this wall. I have to limit the movement of these uh, individuals. I have to cost the up to bulldoze this house. When you remove it from those Bidi Evet situations and you just see people causing harm almost for the fun of it or for the pride of it, it's for me very morally demoralizing, but more broadly, it's like, well, you don't have the justification this time. So what are you doing? Right. And when people are parading in the streets of Jerusalem, by the way, that phrase, parade in the street of Jerusalem, that's a good thing. That's not bad. But when they're banging on the windows of uh, all the airbound homes and they're throwing rocks at people and there's the pepper and, you know, there's that image of that like 15 year old uh, uh, who's pepper spraying this like middle aged uh, Palestinian woman. And Nobody thinks in that moment, oh, we have to do this to protect Jews right now. We have to do this because the security of the state uh, really requires us to be screening Mavet Laravim as we march through an Arab neighborhood. It is just like, it's completely disconnected from any of those justifications. And it's all about reveling in and enjoying uh, and shoving, like visually shoving down the throat of the Arab population, how we won. And um, yeah, I just think about, you know, I think how a, 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 lar- a large Jewish community in the Gola, in the diaspora, in a Christian town, let's say medieval, whatever, medieval Germany somewhere. Like, we had this done to us. We had the, like, the equivalent of, you know, the equivalent of spray pa- of, of chanting, you killed Christ mm-hmm. uh, on, uh, on, an, on Christmas night or on Easter afternoon. Uh, your rabbi is a Benzona, you know, the son of a whore. You know, we have the equivalent. I'm, 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 uh, I'm not even talking about violence here. I'm just talking about, um, proudly showing your power over another group. We had the uh, equivalent of, you know, like spray painting crosses on Jewish homes. So now, I know I'm using a technology that didn't exist in the medieval period, but now it's like, ah, now we're in power. And it's one thing when you talk about the war, or it's one thing when you talk about making sure you stop this terrorist attack. When you're talking about spray painting, you know, I'm Israel Chai on an Arab home, uh, or you're shouting about how this journalist is a uh, Ben Zona, uh, and when you're, yeah, when you're, uh, what was I going to say, you know, uh, spray painting giant Magnin Davids in, uh, and wave, just even spray painting, what, coming into Arab neighborhoods to wave Israeli flags, like, what are we doing? Who is this for? Mm-hmm. It's only for ourselves, and I think it's for the worst part of ourselves. And the, the, the really worst part of ourselves is the part that's able to justify even this. Every, almost every society that's ever oppressed another group has said, we're doing it to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's always going to be the defense. It's always going to be the moral defense. Uh, hey, we have to protect ourselves. If we didn't expel the Jews from Spain, who knows what the Jews are going to do to us? You know, if we didn't round up the Jews into the ghetto, we, who knows what they would have done to us? Mm-hmm. We're always going to use the self-defense um, claim as justification for oppressing those with less power than you. It's always going to be. Now, by the way, sometimes it's actually justified. Like sometimes you do have to protect yourself from another group. The world is scary and like politics is scary and like there are wars and people die. So what's hard is once you go down that road, you need to have some ability to check yourself. You know, some some ability to say like, wait a second, that might not actually apply here. If that doesn't apply, I'm just I'm just the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, like the the Yom Yerushalayim March is like the annual expression of we're not checking ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I know I use that term we broadly, but you know, a subset of Israeli society and a subset of certain supporters outside of Israel are are not checking themselves. And the, like I said, the worst part is I almost wish, I almost wish all it was was, uh, you know what? We think this is fun. We 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 like being powerful. We like seeing uh, those who are weaker than us cower. But the worst version of it is that people say, no, even this is important to ju- to defend ourselves. Even this I can justify as part of the larger project of, you know, whatever it is, making sure that uh, that Arabs who live in Jerusalem, you know, don't don't uh, don't feel too confident. This, too, I can justify as part of protecting the state. And when that happens, it's like, wow, there is literally no check on you. You are going to be willing to do anything uh, and you're going to be willing to find any context because at this point, almost almost anything can be justified with we need this for self-defense. So before I tell you why I think that your comparison is a little bit unfair, okay. I, I do want to say that I, for, for me, I guess the the part that really troubles me the most is that I don't see it as a show of strength at all to march mm-hmm. to a place with military protection that a person would normally not walk through alone and to be rowdy and to be like loud and to bother people and bang on me. And then by the way, it's been probably a good 18 years since I've marched in that parade, but I used to march in the parade. And right. I'll tell you when I was, I forget it was 2006, 2007, I was there as like a Shana Olive, Shana Bet person right. and the yeshiva took me and I was like, what? I couldn't believe it. I mean, I love Yom Rishon. We said hall that morning. I was like, this is what we're doing? And that wasn't even the worst stuff. Like we weren't committing any violence. We weren't throwing any stones. It's like, I, I was shot. I was like, I didn't know my world was really into this. Anyway, okay, please right. continue. So I would say that from an insider's perspective, as somebody who who really like lives in these communities and uh, my children are educated in these schools and I teach in some of these schools, I would say that uh, th- there are a couple things that need to be on the table. Number one, West Bank Jews are not homogenous. You know, obviously there's a difference between a Jew in Alon Shvut and a Jew in Yitzhar or a Jew in uh, Betel and a Jew in uh, Batayin, or a Jew in Hebron and a Jew in Alon Moreh. We're not homogenous, but I think there there's a certain ideological common denominator that should probably be on the table, and that is uh, we see ourselves as an ancient people from this land that was unjustly displaced against our will. We somehow managed to come home against all the odds, and now the international community is trying to displace us again through a two-state solution. And therefore, you know, of course, we have to populate as many mountains as possible in order to make the two-state solution, uh, which we're seeing as a crime, logistically impossible. Your honesty about this is uh, is, uh, impressive. And and I've been part of that. I spent a lot of my life creating new Jewish communities on different mountaintops or different East Jerusalem neighborhoods. And I today, even right now, we're having this conversation. I'm sitting in a caravan on the top of a mountain near a Jewish town. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I want Jews to live here. I want Jews to live in the West Bank. And I definitely have committed a lot of my life to resisting a two state solution. But I have an issue with how Jews are living here and how that affects other people. I think Palestinians are very peripheral to the story I just told. Um, they don't have to be the enemy. Somehow they became the enemy at a certain point along the way. And that's really what I think um, needs to be the project, needs to be the solution here. You know, most Israelis, whether they be from the national religious community or elsewhere, are really living, just like most Palestinians, are really living in a more than 100-year-old ethnic conflict, like where there's been a lot of that. That's why I don't think your comparison about like Poland is so fair, because the truth is we have over a century of real violence going in both directions here, and you can't separate that from the way teenage boys behave in Yom Yerushalayim. Like it's happening within the context of an ethnic conflict that's been going on for over 100 years. And most people, most Jews who live in Judea and Samaria have either lost a relative or a teacher or a neighbor or or a friend to political violence Uh, and Palestinians as well. Meaning this is real. We're not like liberals or conservatives. We're living in a world. I I, uh, I am not myself a, a medieval Polish anti-Semite, but I am confident that when they were banging on the doors of Jewish homes, it's because they felt that they as Christians were suffering by the Jewish presence. It's like I don't know if we have time for a, okay. a conversation about systemic yeah. anti-Semitism and its roots in feudalist Europe, but yes, there was definitely a role that Jews had allowed ourselves to play in medieval Europe 
that caused the peasantry to experience us as the oppressor rather than the nobility. Um, that's how I think anti-Semitism actually operates. I think it operates that way in the United States as well, to a certain extent. And I think Israel plays that role on the international stage. I think there are a lot of uh, people out there who feel very oppressed and see Israel as primarily responsible for their oppression because we, the Jews, have become, especially Ashkenazim, uh, we picked up this habit of trying to ally ourselves to the most powerful Gentile we can uh, in order to feel a sense of protection, in order to feel like we have security. Uh, but of course, we have to make ourselves useful to the powerful Gentile uh, in exchange. And that generally puts us into this middle agent oppressor role that causes those at the bottom to blame Jews for, for their oppression. But that's a, that's a maybe a larger conversation. And I think the way out of that, by the way, is what I said earlier, making the conscious decision to be on the side of the oppressed and not the oppressors. I think the state of Israel today with a formidable army and according to some opinions, nuclear weapons, if we were to actually like decidedly be on the side of the oppressed of the world, uh, that would really change the game and probably challenge anti-Semitism on a global level because suddenly we're not playing into the hands of the oppressors. Uh, but but in terms of these kids, like these are kids, it's not just ideology. I think these are kids who really, really have certain experiences. I'm not, I, I think you and I are in agreement that what happens on Yom Yerushalayim and the targeting of Palestinians in Jerusalem on Yom Yerushalayim is, whether it's Palestinian property or Palestinian people, uh, that we agree is problematic and needs to stop. The question is, how do we stop it? How do we address the people engaging in it? Um, can these people, uh, like I'm of the opinion that these are people who could actually be uh, pivoted to a much more constructive role in moving us forward and, and healing our relations with the Palestinians. I would actually argue that um, much of the national religious community in Israeli society is very much a vanguard. Uh, it has a lot of idealism, a lot of self-sacrifice, a lot of um, ideological conviction that uh, is not shared by the entire society. And I think for the most part, we're talking about really good people. But I think there's also a blind spot when it comes to Palestinians. And I think that blind spot exists because they're the enemy. So I think part of the solution is really creating the conditions for them to not be the enemy, to create a reality where they are no longer the enemy in our story and we are no longer the enemy in their story, that we can actually find a way to be co-protagonists rather than the antagonist in each other's subjective narrative. But I think that these kids specifically, the type of Jewish teenager who goes marching through the old city of Jerusalem, targeting Palestinians, screaming death to the Arabs, that sector of Israeli society specifically might actually be the sector of Israeli society most equipped to engage with Palestinian society in a healthy way that changes our relationship. Uh, much more so, I would say, than Tel Aviv. I, I hope so. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But but it requires us to really um, uh, approach uh, a lot of these issues differently and, and find ways to kind of readjust the, the way people understand uh, the story they're living in and, and the roles different peoples play. I think something that also I, I don't want to forget to say that I think it's problematic when people, especially in the outside, try to impose Western framings, like political framings onto Israeli society, whether it be liberal and conservative, religious and secular, right and left. I, I think Israeli society is very different than that. And these framings might work sometimes or to a point, but uh, ultimately when you get to certain sectors of Israeli society, it gets very clumsy. Uh, like for example, when people try to make comparisons between the Haredim here and uh, the American Christian right, there's no real connection there. You can't really make the Haredim the Christian right of Israel. It just doesn't work. But I think w when you hear uh, a lot of a lot of outsiders, including sometimes diaspora Jews, uh, express opinions about Israel, Israeli politics, Israeli society, you hear a lot of this like imposition of Western political framings on a society where it just doesn't fit right, and that could trip us up. Yeah, um, well, I hear it would be amazing if uh, specifically that sector of society uh, is the one that can help bring us towards peace. I hope so. Um, I, uh, I want to I make sure I uh, share a little bit about what, where I see my own voice in this. Okay. Um, I have near zero standing in the, uh, 
in the uh, in the world of, of religious folks who are who are marching on who are marching in the flag parade and banging on doors and spray painting thing and throwing stones and pepper spraying people. Uh, that's not my world. Nobody wants to hear from me. No one's going to care what I speak with my own ideology and that I'm American. Um, what, where I do have some standing, not a ton, but something, I have some standing in the like American modern Orthodox world and um, the American religious Zionist world. And it was important for me, um, you know, we first connected because I, I wrote a first draft of a statement for the IRF, the International Medical Fellowship, um, condemning this violence. Uh, the statement was edited after I wrote it, so it doesn't perfectly reflect me and I don't speak to the IRF personally. Um, but is important. It was what was important to me was I want to make sure that the American modern Orthodox community that we draw a line um, because there is overlap between our two communities. Because you know we sent our kids to uh, Lumi yeshivas. I hope the parents know. Like, do you know where your kids going to be on your Mishalim? Do you know what they're partaking in? And I hope yeshivas make the right choice here. I hope the yeshivas make the right choice for all their students. But at the very least, I hope Americans realize like this is terrible. I don't want to be part of this. So I think that for our own de definition, I think American Jews need a, to define for ourselves where we think something has gone too far. Um, and also, you know, for me, Yom Rishalim is a religious day. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want my, my my day ruined. And I think as American monorthodox, American religious Zionist Jews, we have to look to each other, look at each other and say, this is still a religious day, even though our cousins in, in Yerushalayim right now are ruining it. Um, you know, I, I posted this, this, this didn't get nearly as much, uh, play cause it was kind of extreme of me, but you know, I, I, I almost want to refer to it as like Yom Chil Hashem. Like today's the day we know on an annual basis, today's the day where all these videos are going to come out. We know it. It's not a shock anymore. Mm -hmm. All these horrible videos are going to come out that either are indefensible or at least visually seem incredibly indefensible. Uh, and we just know this is going to happen. And like here I am saying hello in the morning and like here I am with other religious Zionist Jews in America, like amazed at the miracle, the to me revealed miracle that we won the Six Day War. Uh, and knowing that this day that is our day is going to be defiled. I mean, it's like it, it's like if these things were happening every day on Rosh Hashanah, every year on Rosh Hashanah. So somebody needs to step up and say, you know, we I celebrate Rosh Hashanah too. I need to turn to my community and say, we're going to do Rosh Hashanah the right way, even though it's being ruined right now in the streets of Jerusalem. And so too with Yom Yerushalayim. Yom Yerushalayim is an incredible day, and it's disgusting that it's being ruined like this every single year in a predictable manner. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's that's why I, uh, I spoke out. No one, very few people are going to hear me in Israel, but I hope my own community in America right. uh, re is ready to recognize that, that something's gone wrong here. Uh, I agree with you. Yom Yerushalayim is Chag. And it's a very empowering hug because I think that uh, if Yom Atzmut and Yom Yerushalayim are days um, that we are able to say hala with a bracha because of things that our people did in recent history, it really means that you and I can do things in our lives that will add a new hug to the calendar where we say hala with a bracha. So I, I find that to be a very empowering day. Um, but again, it, for me, it's all about figuring out what's next, what comes after Yom Yerushalayim, what comes after the Six Day War, what are the next goals of Jewish history. Uh, for me, I guess, you know, I, I think that obviously I haven't participated in that parade in, in close to 20 years. Uh, my politics were probably a lot different the last time I did. Obviously, I'm not condoning it, but I think that the way it's contextualized for me is less like it's true that we have power now and they're under us and and all of that but i i think the way the teenagers experience themselves is i guess i i tend to understand them as seeing themselves as almost in a horizontal conflict i think that's part of the problem that a lot of israelis including including these teenagers see themselves locked in a what what they perceive to be a horizontal conflict with the Palestinians and that conflict is not horizontal uh, from the Palestinian perspective at least in my experience I can't speak for Palestinians but my experience is that they really see this as an anti-colonial struggle so you have two very different understandings of what this conflict's about you have this anti-colonial struggle taking place in Palestinian society and like a conflict between two competing nationalisms in Israeli society and I think um, what, what I want to make clear is, for me, the bigger problem is not these kids. I think these kids are a symptom. What they do in Yom Yerushalayim is a symptom. Because I think almost all of Israeli society, from the Meretz voters to the Smotrich voters, see Palestinians as like unwanted foreigners that we wish were not here. 
you know, uh, that, that's, I think, the attitude of almost all of Israeli society. And again, for maybe good reason, we have over 100 years of bloodshed. So it, it happens to be that the Smotrich voters and the Ben Gvir supporters and whatever might express it in a way that's more similar to our neighbors. I think that's also something to think about. Maybe, maybe I'd ask you directly as a diaspora Jewish leader, when you talk about this parade as a Chil Hashem, is there a piece there? I'm, I'm asking you, I don't know, but is there a piece there that makes you feel like we're behaving too much like our neighbors? Um, or, or I'll ask it differently. Like we're not uh, behaving like the liberal Western nation state that our Hasbara organizations try to present us as. I, I, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I think uh, if anything, yeah, I don't think that's it. If anything, it's me, it, it evokes images of uh, of any time Jews were a minority group and there was uh, a majority in power. And, that, and I'm not even talking about violent moments here. I'm just talking about moments of showing your power. I mean, oh, the Jews can't ride on a horse when a Muslim rides a horse. Uh, the Jewish synagogue can't ask to be shorter than the, uh, the Christian church. That's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of, yeah, we're in power, we won, and we're going to shove it. We're going sh- to make sure you see it right now. So you're really contextualizing this within an understanding of Jewish history. I just want to make that clear. You're you're really framing this uh, within the Jewish experience, specifically the Jewish diaspora experience. Right. The, the, the last, to me, the moral, one of the big moral lessons of diaspora Judaism, you know, the last 2000 years of Jewish story, the big moral lesson is it will always be easy for people with power to justify oppressing others in the name of self-defense. It doesn't mean they're always wrong, but it'll always be easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to now, as people of power, we have to make sure that we're uh, that we're that we have checks in place to make sure we don't become what we we don't become the oppressors that we once that we once were victims of. Right. Um, we didn't come yeah. back to life to play that role. We we didn't come yeah. back to life after two thousand years exactly. to, be the role, exactly. to be the Romans, I, the British. Yes, I, I I know we are running out of time. I'm gonna leave one piece. Can't help myself. From the Shul Rabbi, I gotta end with a little bit of Torah, and uh, it's some. I'll sum it up as follows. Uh, you know, people in in America right now, in the gun control debate, people often turn to particular mission on Shabbat. I'm sure this is used often in the context of security in Israel. Uh, but you know, the mission on Shabbat in the in the sixth parak talks about walking outside on Shabbat without an Arab with weapons on you, with your sword or your you know your arrow, your bone arrow on you, and you're allowed to walk outside with clothing, but it, is your gun part of your clothing? So Lezer says, You know, your gun is part of your, uh, your sword and your bow is part of your clothing. It's part of your decoration. Your jewelry. Your jewelry, yeah. I think you're, I think, yeah, uh, what's, what's the word? Accessory, you know? It's an accessory. It makes you look good. It's like sunglasses um, or a watch. Yeah, that's his view. And of course, the Chachamim come in with the majority position. They said the opposite. They're a Gnai. Now, the Chachamim aren't saying you should never carry a sword. And the Chachamim aren't saying that swords aren't important. Like, hey, you need to defend yourself. Maybe it has a practical purpose. They're saying as important as they are, they're also still a Ganai. And I think uh, the the parallel here is basically uh, is basically power and state power. Yes, thank God in Israel. Thank God. I like literally, I literally thank God for this. Thank God. Like, we have military power. Thank God. We have literally prison power. We can put people in prison. We have uh, all sorts of powers. And, um, but the key is to, to not think that they're Tachshitin, they're not. They're, uh, they're Ganai. We use them when we have to. And any moment when I see somebody switch from the Ganai approach, which is like, God, we have to use this when we have to. And hopefully soon the day will come, like Yeshua says, the day will come when we can get rid of these things. And anytime I see somebody switch from that and start treating them as Tachshitin, as, ooh, this is gonna be so exciting. I can't wait for your Mishalayim. I can't wait to show uh, the Arabs who live in Yerushalayim how much power we have. That's when I know we're, we, we've gone astray. So I hope that as American Jews, I think American Jews are actually really, really well positioned to point out when the Ganai is being treated like a Tachshit. And I think we're at, in some sense, we have a better perspective, an easier perspective outside of the state to say, to be able to make that distinction. And so that's what I was trying to do, to call out, hey, there are things we need to do to protect ourselves, the things we need to do to build our state, but uh, don't, ever, don't ever treat it like it's something to be gloried about and to be gleeful about and certainly don't use it outside the context of actually uh, protecting the state and protecting Jewish people. So with that, <laughs> I come to a close, but I think that's one of the roles of American Jews. I think it's one of the lessons of diaspora history. And uh, that's why it was important for me to speak up on this. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing that perspective with us. As I said in the beginning, you know, sometimes 
uh, Jews kind of standing on the outside of what's going on here in the land have a vantage point, have a perspective that is very difficult for those of us who are like living here on the ground to really understand, to, to see, you know, it's just a different perspective. And, uh, and it's an important perspective. And it's not by accident that a lot of our great leaders over the centuries have specifically come from outside the land, whether we're talking about Moshe, Yoshua, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Herzl, you know, meaning that a lot of our leaders have, have specifically come from the diaspora because there's a different perspective. Right, all the way back to Abraham. Right. All right, so thank you so much for, for joining me. Right next time you're in Israel, please uh, hit me up and uh, maybe we'll go grab a beer. And uh, next time I'm in New York, maybe you'll show me around Greenpoint. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, it was a pleasure discussing, discussing right. this interview and uh, getting some insights as well. Right. This is Yudah Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you're interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 79.